Our great God and Father, we come to you through the Son and by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that there's power, Lord, uh, in your word when it's moved by you. Lord, we have special revelation in the text, but we need applied revelation by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, help your weak servant now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think people should be able to do whatever they want to do. These were the words of an angry protester said repeatedly with expletives to a pro-life lecturer. The lecturer quickly pointed out how impossible of an ethic that is if everyone just did whatever they wanted to do. The protester didn't seem to grasp that and just continued to scream it. But that engagement reminded me that we live in a world that's filled with violence. When threatened, many today know no restraint. But do you ever notice how that temptation can rise up in your, in your own heart? When you and I don't get what we want or what we really want is threatened. I mean, culturally, we are discipled to do this. I mean, don't we live in a world where people break contracts today without blinking? Don't we live in a world where, a world that complains regularly about misinformation while at the same time contending that a man can have a baby? How many leaders and teachers and parents and pastors and others live by the this phrase, rules for thee, but not for me. You can summarize the mantra of this age, like many other ages before it, like this. Mine is the power, mine is the kingdom, and mine is the glory. You know, Scripture teaches this is what we naturally pursue. We're naturally about ourselves. I've never had to teach my children how to disobey and live for themselves. They had it naturally. They learned it naturally from me. You know, we all seek to live as if God doesn't exist. Are you surprised by that today? Many are. Sometimes it's not apparent that we can be like this until God comes close to an issue that's really important to us. You know, hits that right button. And today we're going to look at an example of this in God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open it and turn to Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Let me give a brief background as you're turning there. Mark highlights the extraordinary authority of Jesus as the Son of God. And he reveals that Jesus is the promised Messiah anticipated from the Old Testament. And he would not come to first conquer the Romans, but to suffer and die as an atoning sacrifice for sins as the Old Testament foretold. And our context today is within what, what many call Holy Week. So get a glimpse of what's happened so far as we get a little momentum going into the text today. Jesus has ridden in on a donkey to declare his identity and many praised him. 
He has cursed the fig tree and the temple for its fruitlessness and instructed the disciples that the temple mount is now, is, is really a temple mount of unbelief. He identified himself as the actual location of the forgiveness of sins and prayer. And in his condemning the temple and collision with the Jewish leadership, now is where we pick up in chapter 11, verse 27. Hear now God's holy word. They, this is Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But when they took him, but they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. So let's do a, a, just a broad overview. Let's zoom out. Google Earth, right? Let's just back up some and look at the broad view here. Mark reveals that the Jewish leaders who take no stock of themselves or their plans to kill Jesus, but they do try to take stock of his authority. And when they question Jesus, what happens is they get exposed as blind guides who cannot discern the things of God. And that's verses 27 through 33. And then if you'll notice there in the parable, verses 1 through 5, he illustrates their history in a parable that builds upon Isaiah 5, which was read earlier in the service, and the vineyard of God's people. The picture is the same. They are fruitless, full of corruption, violent towards his prophets, and rebel against God's throne. In verses 6 through 12, 
we see that he will seek to kill God's son. Jesus tells them that they can expect judgment, but their plans will backfire when they reject him because God will use that to give victory to his true people and replace them with new leaders. So here's the central point. If you're taking notes, I believe there's a spot there on the back of your bulletin. If you're taking notes this morning, rejecting God ends in destruction. Rejecting God ends in destruction. Therefore, turn from self-rule, turn from self-rule, and submit to Christ. And submit to Christ. As we go through the passage this morning, pay attention to what Jesus shows, to what Jesus illustrates, and what Jesus declares. What he shows, what he illustrates, what he declares. Point number one, Jesus shows us who needs questioning in verses 27 through 33 of chapter 11. Jesus shows us who needs questioning. Do you have any loved ones who are difficult to get to the doctor? Uh, don't throw any elbows out there this morning. Maybe you have someone in mind. Maybe you are that person that's difficult to get to the doctor. I'm one of those. You, you know they have health problems. They know it. And yet they act like everything's fine. But what does it, friends, look like spiritually when we need help and continue to reject it? What does it look like when human beings forget they are inwardly corrupt in their sinful hearts and, not, and they act like they're not in need of God's transforming grace. What does that look like in a person's life? I don't need God. I don't need His transforming grace. I don't need His help. What does it look like? Well, one of the ways it looks like, it looks like right here in these verses, when they ask, by what authority to Jesus Christ? These guys are asking Him, by what authority do you do these things? Really, who do you think you are to challenge us? We are the righteous elite. Can't you tell by how we dress? Can't you tell by the language we speak with? Can't you tell by all these external factors? Mark wants us to see how audacious this question is to Jesus. Because Jesus has been authenticated again and again in Mark's gospel. So if you've been reading in momentum in Mark's gospel and you come to this question, it should feel jarring to you. Are you serious? You're asking Jesus this question? He's been authenticated by John the Baptist. His works and his words add further proof. I mean, their questions seem very stupid on that first level because they are. I mean, this man teaches with authority. He has cast out demons with authority, heals with authority. He does what only God can do. But these leaders question his ordination papers? Really? Talk about misreading the room, right? I mean, Jesus is the one who lays claim to prerogatives that belong to God. He, he binds Satan, presumes to forgive sins, claims supremacy over the Torah and the Sabbath, replaces the temple in Jerusalem. By what authority? Really? They, don't, they, they also don't see how they have zero authority. So not only do they misread Jesus, they misread themselves. 
These guys have some nerve to ask this question. They do not ask about their own authority, which they gave themselves. They had no authority from heaven. They appointed themselves to these positions of power and rallied people around them for earthly success. The chief priests, as you see in the text, the scribes and the, and the elders, taken together, these three groups comprised the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, who opposed Jesus just as he said they would do in chapter 8. Friends, these, these guys here, their power was enormous from an earthly perspective. And they were super sensitive to anything that could threaten their authority and stop them from having their way. And Jesus is that threat. You know, he still is today. But he doesn't have to be. He doesn't have to be that way if you humble yourself before him. These leaders had no sanction from heaven to do the work at Herod's temple that they were doing. At this Herod's temple complex, you could call it. Herod's temple is called that for a reason. It was not commissioned by God. It was gaudy and political. It was all sizzle, no steak. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no power of God present at Herod's temple. There was no discussion. There was, there was, sure, there, there was discussion there about Old Testament books, but there was a lot of men's extra teaching, teachings and direct rejection of what the prophets pointed to in Messiah. I mean, imagine having the Hebrew Scriptures, but the teachers actually were more about Jewish culture and background and ethnicity and nationalism than they were ever about God. You would think when Jesus showed up, they'd be like, everybody get out of the way. Jesus is here. No, no, no. They go up to him. By what authority? I mean, no wonder they miss and reject Jesus. No wonder they are living high on the hog off the temple cash cow. John the Baptist did not give them or this building any credit either. Remember, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance, remember, for the forgiveness of sins that completely bypassed Herod's temple. And that burned them up too. They hated John the Baptist too. But they were political. As you can see in the text, they play it safe. So the logic here is this. If John the Baptist is from heaven, verse 29, then, then the temple was clearly outdated and they did not want to admit that. The hope of the Old Testament was always the new covenant in Christ. The elite despise John the Baptist's dismissal and rebuke of them, and they are angry with Jesus' authority when it goes against them as well. It hurt their politics, and it hurt their pocketbooks. But friends, you know, it's easy to be tough on these guys, and there's plenty to be tough on them about. And the temptation is to be tough on them and not ourselves. So let's let the word be a mirror to us for a moment. Would we do any better if all of our livelihood and identity was wrapped up in these particular things? If you had to choose between Jesus and your contacts, Jesus and your popularity, Jesus and your power, how would you react? How would I? When God's word is brought to you to challenge the way that you and I prioritize him or this world, how do we react? 
do we say, by what authority do you come at me with God's word? You bristle at God's word when it's brought to you in that way. Friends, let's not be too critical of the Jewish elite here. We can be just as self-important, just as self-righteous, just as self-centered as they are. And we don't need to pretend in church like we, we, we're better. We're not. We are sinners. And as Paul Tripp says, the DNA of, of sin is selfishness. The worship there should have been done with a caveat of, of preaching belief and repentance towards the Messiah, but that's not what they were doing. And it makes us remember, friends, we all have a source of authority in our lives. Someone or something that guides us and drives us, something that rules. And for most of us, like the Sanhedrin, it's ourselves. We are not really interested in surrendering that rule to anyone else. We can be really good at asking everyone else questions. Maybe you're that person. You're really good at asking someone questions, putting them on the spot. But you know what we can really stink at sometimes? Asking ourselves questions. Like looking in the mirror, hey, you need a good question or two. Quick to be quit critical of someone else, slow to be critical of ourselves. Am I meddling this morning? I'm trying to meddle a little bit. Because Jesus messes with our, with our self-righteousness, doesn't he? He confronts us directly. I mean, friends, don't we all need to make room for some self-doubt? That's totally contrary to what culture would have us to do. Don't ever doubt your feelings is what culture would say to us. But actually, God's Word tells us to have some self-doubt. Why? Because we're non-perfect. Because we're all sinners. Self-deception is very real. Do not people today scream at each other about rights, in a, about rights in very inconsistent ways? You know, people want the right to live however they want, as I opened up with, but they don't want free ideas to challenge them. Church, fo church folks, you know, sometimes will, will cry out about the right to go to church, but be offended when someone calls them to be faithful. We want a good marriage, but we fail to put to death the selfishness that it requires to have a good marriage. We want our little, like, we just speak to children in the room this morning. We want our little brothers and sisters to respect our stuff. But we forget all the ways we've not respected our parents. I mean, these guys here in the text are incredibly self-deceived in self-importance, just like every one of us can be. I mean, do we want to be free of this? Do we want to live better than this? We have to turn from self-importance and we have to turn toward God. It's painful to realize how blind we can be. But did, did you know, friend, that God can help you? I'm here to tell you this morning that God can help sinners like you and me. He can help us turn to Him and I want to encourage us all today to ask him for that help and to watch what happens. Verse 29. Jesus puts them to the test. John the Baptist's ministry is closely tied to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus as his superior. These guys know that. And they, if they answer that John the Baptist is legit, well, they have to submit to Christ. If they say that John the Baptist was of human origin in his teaching and 
and ministry and prophecy, then he is in error because he's merely human and they are careful politically not to go there. You see, if they say that John the Baptist is of human origin, they'd have to admit that John's just like every other worldview out there, that John the Baptist is like every other philosophy that's out there that denies God, that denies his word, and friends, they all lead to failure and judgment. A man-made religion is what everyone who embraces, is what everyone embraces who denies that Jesus, is, that Jesus is both God and Savior. They are led by the trust in their own perception and sight. Fundamentally, at its root, paganism has a very high confidence in one's natural faculties. The Bible says, though, we're blind in sin, that we are deaf to God's voice. So they don't want to go that route with John the Baptist. Notice twice in the text, you see how Jesus twice in the text gives the command, answer me. You see that in the passage? Answer me. Friends, it's like Jesus squares us all up right here and he says to you and me, you answer me. I'm talking to you. Now you know that rubbed them the wrong way. Nobody said that to the Sanhedrin. They didn't answer to anyone. Are you that kind of person that gives an account to no one? Is that your pattern? Does it look like you're in good company in, this, in the Bible? How do you think that will work out for you to live your life unaccountable? And certainly not mindful of the account you will give to God. I guess what I'm really asking you is, are you content to live in self-deception? Maybe you are. Maybe you feel very comfortable there and you'll leave here in that condition. I pray that you won't. I remember, like many of you, watching the first season of American Idol many years ago. Remember, that? It, was a, it, was, it was a huge uh, television phenomenon. I was amazed, like most viewers, viewers back then, at how many contestants thought that they could sing well. You know what I'm talking about. And they were in genuine shock and denial when they were exposed, when they were told, that's terrible, that sounds awful, no. The same is true of us often as people about our own righteousness and discernment. It's like we, are in, we can be in shock and in denial about how deep our sin goes. I'm always amazed by the churchgoer who doesn't mind sitting in the position of fault finding but will not hear any criticism themselves. Cannot hear it. And they cannot confess any specific sin. They'll confess sin and, oh, I, I failed or I sinned. They'll, but they can't ever name it. They can never say anything specific. They're fine for you and I to talk about our sin specifically. But they themselves, it's like they can't, they can't get it out of their mouth. It's like it, they can't cl claim the fact what they have done in their lives. Just can't say it. Well, not only does that promote pride, but it hurts other people in the church when we maintain a position of self-righteousness like that. If we are being that kind of church member, 
we're being very unhelpful. I would just encourage you, ask your elders who shepherd you faithfully here at this church if they see that pattern. And if so, receive it and grow. Don't stay at a surface level talking about sin. Be specific. Be clear. But no one demanded answers from the elite here. But Jesus does. Verse 31 and 32, he creates that dilemma for these leaders who huddle pathetically to discuss it. He threw them a softball, didn't he? He asked them about John the Baptist. I mean, forget softball for a minute. How about wiffle ball? Just the easiest ball to, to slam, right? To kill. I'll answer this question about John the Baptist. They miss it completely. They avoid it. You know, when a court justice nominee is asked what a woman is, it should be a simple test to pass. It should be very plain. And so it is here. How can these leaders shepherd God's flock if they can't discern his plainly revealed will? You see the, what's going on here? They are too proud to admit what they really believe. Verse 33, when they say they don't know the answer, they show their inability to discern spiritual matters with reference to John the Baptist, and it invalidates their claim to be leaders over God's people. They just outed themselves how foolish they look right now. I recently heard about a politician whose chief of staff is no longer with them, and since he's out of the picture... This person's social media rants and talking points have been exposed. And when they are pressed with difficult questions, they're being exposed more and more as incompetent without that backup. You know, that never feels good to be exposed, does it? I don't think anybody's like walking in, I hope I'm put on the spot in front of many others today and ask tough questions. No. We are all very committed to avoiding that moment, aren't we? Have you ever hoped that you don't get called on? Just me? I was like that in school. Please, I hope the teacher doesn't call on me. I, I, I was like Brian Regan. I just, please don't call on me. I would give the wrong answer. I probably wasn't paying attention. You know, I did not want to go through that embarrassing moment. That's trivial. Friends, when we are exposed in our weaknesses particularly as it pertains to God's word and about Christ and our need to repent and follow him, we have two choices. We can be grateful for the opportunity to learn the truth or we can continue on and put on a charade. We could, we could go on like, yeah, everything's fine. My Christianity is good. It's great, just fine. Or we can hear the truth and respond to it. I mean, can't you see now is the time to stand before God exposed and ask him for help and know that he wants to help. These men and, and many today refuse to be thankful for the truth and they play games with it all the way to judgment. Are you playing games with the truth? And so when Jesus refuses then to answer their question, he's essentially saying they have no discernment in the ways of God with reference to John. They have no authority or ability to judge the source of, of his authority. So there's no reason to answer them. And some folks show they really have no interest in the truth if you watch carefully. I want to ask this to you this morning in church. Has God, the Holy Spirit, 
opened your eyes to see who Jesus is. Do you know Jesus? You won't see him on your own. You will not discern Jesus on your own abilities. You will not produce faith on your own. It comes by the grace and power of God. I have no ability to convince anyone of their need of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to work through the preaching of the message. Have your eyes been opened? Has your life been changed by Jesus Christ? Do you have a changed relationship to sin? I mean, look at this think tank right here, the Sanhedrin. This is the world and all their brain trust trying to explain away God. One of my sons said to me recently, Dad, it takes a lot of faith to believe what some believe about origins. It doesn't take a lot of faith to believe in a creator. I think that's true. These brain trusts here and and both today as well put a lot of faith, a lot of faith in the fact that they are in the right. They put a lot of faith that God will not judge them for their sins. It takes faith to believe that. They have a lot of faith in themselves and no faith in Christ because they have no, uh, their hearts are not renewed. They hate Jesus. They want the world. They do not want God. They want Herod's crumbs and not Jesus' treasure. Maybe that's you today. You would rather gain the world than your soul. As Jesus asked, what will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Verse 32 is the ironic, ironic statement of the passage. They feared the people. You see that in verse 32? They feared the people. It reveals that their authority derives from humans. There's their authority right there. It's of man. They are in error, and yet they question Jesus. So friends, let me ask, what is your authority? Have you looked at how you trust that authority by faith at some point? These men may evade Jesus' question, and perhaps you avoid it too, but you cannot evade God's judgment. And friends, given our sinful ways, our proclivity to live for ourselves, shouldn't the question here be, instead of by what authority, shouldn't the question to Jesus be, Lord, show me how to live, live under, would you show me how to live under your authority? Would you help me to follow you, Jesus? I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus shows us who needs questioning. It's us. Rejecting God ends in destruction. Turn from self-rule and submit to Christ. Number two, Jesus illustrates who actually dishonors God. Jesus illustrates who actually dishonors God. And as you can tell from the illustration, it's those who reject his word. So what does it look like to not take a look at the patterns of our lives. You ever just take, a, take stock of your patterns? Sometimes I don't want to write down my eating habits. Why? Because it, that list will condemn me. Some of you are laughing. You know the same is true out there. I don't want to look at my, my habits and patterns. My habits could, to be frank, could use some real scrutiny. How about you? Imagine if it wasn't just my pattern, but actually the very history of my people. 
What if I was just merely continuing in the patterns of my family and people that I was, you know, just thoughtless about ever questioning? Just because it's my people, my family, doesn't mean it's the right thing that should be going on. I mean, don't some patterns need to be broken? And we can see this in all of our families, tribes, and groups. But here in these verses, we see a people tone deaf, oblivious to their own patterns, but quick to be offended by any challenge. And he illustrates here in the parable of the vineyard he, how the Jewish leaders are just as wicked as former ancient Israel leaders were. And that's a heavy blow, considering what happened in the past. Go read Isaiah. Go read Jeremiah. Sure, they were not involved in visible idolatry, but their inward idols of lust and greed are exposed. And the rejection of God is exposed. Notice how Jesus builds upon the imagery of Isaiah 5, portraying the coming destruction of, of those who fail to bear fruit of, for, for God. God is the owner of Israel, the vineyard. The Jewish leaders are the tenants in the text. The servants are the prophets. And Jesus is the only son and heir in this parable. Verse 6, the phrase, beloved son, only twice previously in Mark's gospel, both occurring when God declared that Jesus is his son whom I love. Chapter 1 and chapter 9. The parable or allegory is like, like Nathan to David. It proclaims to those who are listening, you are the man. You are the wicked ones in this text. Jesus is putting that finger right in the chest right here. I don't know about you guys, but I had a, I had a strong dad. And I did not want that finger coming my way. Sometimes it would come right here in my chest, you know. And sometimes it hit me right here in the nose. But I got the point when he was talking to me. And you can feel the sharpness of Jesus' correction right here. Hitting them right between the eyes. That they are vile, incorrigible, deadbeat tenants of God's vineyard. They are the ones who are a hindrance and stumbling block that he, he said it would be better for a, a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you'd be thrown into the seat than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. The weak ones who are looking to Christ. It mirrors the real-life story of their rejection of God's prophets, such as John the baptizer and their, and their venomous plot against God's son. Some of you remember Jeremiah as just an example when he said, Since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you, and time and time again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. That's in Jeremiah chapter 7. So like King David, the text says there in verse 12, they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew it was for them. But unlike David, they do not repent when confronted with the truth. The abuse of the servants and the, the... Look at the text in the allegory. It progressively gets worse. First, the servant is beaten and sent away. Next is struck on the head and treated shamefully. And then le and last is killed there, verse 5. This was their history towards those who proclaimed the truth. They merely illustrate the spirit of Cain. They're like many today who want to cancel those who stand for the truth inside and outside the church. 
So friends, we have to ask ourselves, do we like convenient truths only? Is that our pattern? Jesus highlights that the people should be having the fruit of repentance towards God. And just as in Isaiah 5, there was no righteousness and justice, but there was great sin, particularly among the religious elite. Instead of being helpful to the kingdom, they were a hindrance. They were all about turf wars. They were threatened by those with superior gifts. They taught aspects of the scripture along with traditions for selfish gain. You know, competitiveness can be fun on a basketball court. It can be disastrous in a church. Among those who claim to be God's people. Look, look at how people latch on to their favorite personalities or camps today. They're more discipled by podcasts and YouTube than they're all their old pastors and elders. That's shameful. Ask a podcaster to bury you and your loved ones when they pass. Or to suffer you with you when you lose your loved one. We need to remember there is one Lord Jesus. Everyone else, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, are mere men, slaves, co-workers in God's vineyard. That's it. That's it. I'm happy to be among the unimpressive. And buddy, I am. And Jesus shows that this temple and its leaders, though, are a sham. They're all about self-promotion. We think self-promotion and selfies are a thing of today. They were doing it back then. They were peacocking back then. Friends, it's a picture of all of us in rejection of God. We put on certain appearances, but when you look closely, you'll find no life in God. There's no worship. And maybe someone today needs to stop pretending to be to being so virtuous and own the fact that just like all of us, you've rebelled against God, that right now you are good with God as long as He does not get in your way of comfort, ease, and the American dream. Maybe that's you today. I don't know. Perhaps is the day that somebody admits, you know what, I'm really just about the prosperity gospel. That's what I'm about. You know, as long as God is keeping me happy and full, but I'm too, maybe you're too proud to admit it. You don't want to look like some of the nut jobs on TV that, are, that do crazy things, but in your theology, you really want Jesus to go along with your desires rather than you conforming to Jesus. You haven't been hit with the truth that Jesus is so much better than anything this world can give us. Can you be, can anybody talk you out of Jesus today? I love my family. I'm not turning from Jesus for anybody. I'm not turning from Jesus to anything or anyone. How about you? The caretakers here, Israel's caretakers, refuse to give God his glory, but so do all of us when we live in unrepentant sin. We want to get the glory. That's our age again. We're, just, we're, we're not that different. Look at me. Look at my selfies. Look at how good I am. Look how perfect my home life is or how good I am with my trials. Look at how I tend to my social media more than my own soul. And we should be saying, no, no, look at how good Jesus is. Look at how he saves sinners like me. Don't look at me. Look to Jesus. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is perfect. Jesus never fails. So what's your pattern with, what's your pattern, friends? We saw him lay out their patterns of rejecting God's word. What's your pattern? 
Do you graciously receive the word and pray with repentance towards Christ? So he illustrates who actually dishonors God by their patterns. Rejecting God ends in destruction. Turn from self-rule and submit to Christ. Number three, last point. Jesus declares judgment and salvation. Jesus declares judgment and salvation. You ever catch yourself or others who think that just because they or people in their circles can't do something, then it, it can't be done, you know? Well, I didn't, I didn't do it. Surely it can't be done. Or it didn't ha- our family couldn't do it. It must not. It can't be done. You ever, you ever dealt with that before? Maybe you're a coach. You've dealt with that on the sports field before or in business. That's often how teams and corporations fall behind. It's how nations can fall behind. But when that thinking is opposed, imposed upon God, I couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. You know, God's like us. Well, if you have a serious theological error, the holy power of God and the justice of God and the holy love of God are severely underestimated when we ever begin to think of God like ourselves. A critical mistake is to think that God is like us. It's to think that his power, his sovereignty and love and justice are bound in some way, limited in some way. Don't do that with him. Look, at, look with me at verses 9 and following what's happening here. The owner suddenly changes See, there was a lot of assumptions being made about God after prophet, after prophet, after prophet was killed and finally an assault on the sun happens. Something suddenly changes. The one who is seemingly impotent is the one who shows up to exact justice. He's now Lord of the vineyard who will destroy the tenants who killed his servant, his servants and son but the Lord is not through. He will give the vineyard to others, Jesus says. You see that in the parable. But notice that although the true heir is rejected and killed, the inheritance still belongs to him and to his community in this illustration Jesus gives. The parable exposes the plans of the leaders who were looking for a way to kill him. Just as a faithless failure to produce the fruits of justice and righteous became the grounds of God's judgment in the past, Isaiah 5, so they are also grounds for judgment in the present against those who conspire against Christ. Verse 7, look at verse 7. You hear them say, come, let's kill him. You see that in the text. These were the words spoken by Joseph's Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37 to illustrate their history further. This has been your pattern from the beginning. Come, let's kill him. You've been saying that a long time, he's saying to them. How foolish they are to to think they can get away with such living. Here's the lesson, lesson, friends. Foolish hopes, let's kill him, let's take it for ourselves, leads to stupid and reckless behavior. Foolish hopes lead to foolish and reckless behavior. People begin to live like they are the owner of their life and not God. They push God out and think that there's no consequence that takes a shape upon our lives. And do humans think that by erasing God from their lives that, you know, they think they can take control of earthly and eternal destinies? Yes, they believe that. 
Some folks really believe that they are the captain of their soul. Don't they? And so the allegory reveals the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. Verses 10 and 11 reveals that obviously God is not powerless. He's not impotent. He is omnipotent. And he has shown inordinate patience with these people. But the conclusion reveals the prophetic warning that God will not be patient forever. Perhaps you're here today and you know that you have no relationship with God. You do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're playing with time. You're assuming that you get another day. We cannot make that assumption. We should never bank on the fact that we'll have another day. If you can hear me, if you have ears to hear, today is the day you turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and be saved. The rejection of Jesus is under the providence of God here. Look at the text. All things are under his providence, over his, under his superintending rule. The rejection and murder of Jesus will lead to the building of the true household of faith. And so he quotes Psalm 118, which was read this morning in the opening of the service. The very psalm the crowd chanted when Jesus entered the city, Hosanna, God save us. He cites this part of Psalm 118. And I love that, that question that Jesus says there. Haven't you read? Haven't you read? Again, <laughs> not only did he tell them, answer me, he says to these guys who carry themselves as experts, haven't you read? It's like, don't you know the simple, observable fact of God's word? They did not know the scriptures of which they boasted. And no wonder they wanted to arrest him and kill him. The psalm explains the one who is rejected and murdered will be vindicated, just like Isaiah said too. He came for this purpose. Jesus came for this purpose, to suffer and to die for the sins of God's people. There's an enemy greater than Rome. It's called sin and the evil one who holds us captive. And we're under that captivity because of the curse of sin. Jesus Christ, God, the Son, the eternal Son, God's Word says He came to us in human flesh, full humanity, body and soul. And He lived the perfect life of righteousness that you and I never did and then went to Calvary's cruel cross to bear the sin debt and the, sin pun and the punishment for sin for any and all who would ever, who would ever repent and believe. Pastor Gary, are you saying that Jesus... Jesus came to die for me? Friends, if you can have ears to hear, turn to Christ. Yes! Jesus came to take on our sin debt as if it was his own. That's what redemption means. He took it on as if it was his own guilt. Our sin debt was laid on the perfect Son of God. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died, the Bible says. And on the third day, the Bible says he rose from the grave. Christ is alive. Jesus is alive. And if you can hear me today, I'm, I'm pleading with you, come to Christ. Why would you wait another moment? Why would you wait another second? Turn from your sins, your rebellion against God, and trust in Christ. Today is the day to do that. This one was rejected. The very foundation these foolish ones rejected is the rock of our salvation. Christ is the sure foundation. 
The block of stone the builders discarded becomes the cornerstone, the capstone of a new structure. God's people is like a household, a temple, built upon Christ and the, as the cornerstone and the apostles laying the foundation. And look at, the, look at verse 11. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Only God could do something like this. And we give him all the glory. And what these leaders are responsible for in their sin is all under the sovereign providence of God to bring about the salvation of his true people comprised of Jews and Gentiles through the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, what they meant for evil, God intended for good. But look at the text. Who are the others who will receive the vineyard? You see that? The context points to Jesus and the apostles who will make up not only the new people of God, but their leadership as well. There is going to be a change-up. Just as we've seen in the Old Testament prophets, God's going to rip their little kingdom from their hands. Judgment is coming. This temple, Herod's temple, is going to be waylaid. It's still not there today. There's a wall left of it. It's sad. The real temple appeared in the flesh. Jesus is the mediator and the mediation place between God and man. He's the place where forgiveness of sins and prayers are heard. Christ is the mediator between God and man. Jesus declares judgment and salvation. Wow, that God would love you and I and include us in this. I don't know, I, I'll answer for myself. I deserve to be cast out. I deserve to be judged. My sins deserve His wrath. I have no righteousness of my own. But Jesus loves me, this I know. God sent Jesus to redeem me and save me and change me. How about you? Do you know Christ? Are you the supreme authority in your life? Or is Jesus? How do you know? What's your pattern of response to the word? Is it as good as you think it is? Who told you? Are you aware of the cost of rejecting Christ? Are you aware of the grace that's there for any who repent and believe that God loves you and he will forgive you if you come to Christ? Are you hoping in God as he's revealed in the word? Are you hoping in your feelings that he's like you? The invitation stands. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and be forgiven. Know God's mercy in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, our feet is, are so shaky on every other foundation. And there was a time, Lord, when we were living in a state of rejecting Jesus, putting all of our hope on a number of other things. We exercise large amounts of faith in all kinds of things except you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for opening eyes and ears. Calls us to rejoice that we can stand firm today. That the one who was rejected is the very cornerstone because he's risen from the dead. Holy Spirit, help us to rejoice and delight in you more and more. 
Cause us to abide in the truth. In your precious name we pray. Amen and amen.